I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Good. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of the day you're deciding to listening to us. This, I am the great white snark, Scotty J, and this is Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. God, I butchered that one this morning, or tonight. God. Right. Joining me with, God damn, I'm trying it again. <laughs> So lucky we're doing this. It was just like got so much other stuff to go. Right. It's like, yeah, just do it and get over with. Again, it's like this past joining me on this descent in the madness is the lovely and twisted Monica, as you just heard. Hi. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh like, God. <laughs> well, uh, for for everyone who is who, who's out there listening, we have both had like the most strenuous week imaginable. Um, I'm, I'm probably about three weeks away from the end of my semester in 19th century American history. Um, I almost had to do two papers this week, but my, my professor was lucky and just said, okay, since you can't get into, to the resource page where this is being held, um, don't worry about it. And like in the last couple of weeks at work to with its like you're right monica works in a in a seasonal seaside jersey town which uh-huh. which is it, it i've been there it's a nice town you know and during the winter but yeah. well right like which is nice because well the lights are like um yeah can't think again too the lights blank yellow okay so basically it's a whole bunch of like stop signs so you Which can tell he's not from around here like have the people with like the, the blinking lights and they stop and they're like i don't know what to do it's like look both ways while you're driving slow then go if it's right. the red light you stop the blinking red you stop it's like it, it's the uh it, it's the town of farmer stops right now yeah and then when i go to back to like Pennsylvania, it's like, oh my god, all this traffic! <laughs> right. <laughs> like a two-minute red light. I'm like, what the heck? And five cars, and it's like... Oh, you have five cars back on. up, red light. Yeah. On top of it, we're both dealing with sinus problems. Uh-huh. Because I took Tylenol and um, the allergy medicine before this, too. Right, so yeah, we, we, we're both like... Looking at this week on, can we start winter hibernating? I saw it was like 13 pages. I'm like, are you kidding me? I did not realize it was 13 pages. Yeah, well, and then I was having problems with the printer. I was like being caught. I'm like, oh, come on. And I thought the paper was out, but yeah, it was just caught. So that was fun. You're going to do that up. Be like that yeah. scene in uh, Office Space where uh, uh, 
God, I want to. Oh, the facts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where, it kept, where it kept getting yeah. jammed in the facts and the, the uh-huh. guy just went postal on it. Yeah. The copy, the, or copy, the printer we have. Yeah. It's like, it's actually pretty easy to like unjam stuff and all too. So well, that's good. Yeah. So, but then like with all the Halloween stuff going on too. Right. Tomorrow night, that's what we're meeting, you know, friend of his and going out to the. No, I. Last. I think it was last weekend I took my kids up to a costume shop in Chicago. We haven't been up there since they were like James's age. Uh And the, the place is like a city block long. And it's just one, it's one building. So like at the far end, they've got like the the slutty adult costumes, Uh then the wigs, then masks, then kid costumes, and then adult regular costumes and makeup. Uh And um, I went up there because I was told I was handing out candy this year. So I decided I'm going to dress up for it. And... Uh, I I'm going with uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, cool. So I I found like a, a skull mask that yeah. I'm going to put makeup uh-huh. on and put it all on and everything. Well, in the mask section along one line, they've got like every Michael Myers mask made That's from cool. like the first Halloween to Halloween dies. Uh-huh. Ends. No, no, it's Halloween dies. No, it's I, Halloween. It's I Halloween. watched last one. It's like the, the no Halloween dies. I just watched it last weekend on Peacock. Like so, but the newest one is Halloween ends. Whatever. It's been a long time. Yeah, right there, <laughs> super stupid screen. Yeah. Halloween ends. All I know is. Yeah, yeah. So like, All I know is if he oh, comes wow, back, it for me now. It's like, well, no, out. I'm just saying that if he comes back from, if he finds a way to come back from this one, they just should name him Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I to see because when we went to Pasadena, we saw the the hedge. You know, yeah, nice. Uh huh. That was awesome. All right, but, folks. Yeah, but James is going to be Milton Hershey. Nice. So he got the. Well, I did. I got to buy a suit. I did find a um in in the mask section. They did have a a Lon Chaney Senior Phantom of the Opera mask. Mm-hmm. But my problem with masks are they get real tight around my eyes, and so. my peripheral is mixed, 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 mm-hmm. messed up. So I'm just happy slapping makeup on my face. Or like a little foam latex mask yeah. I can just apply. Mm-hmm. But I did, I did, I just knocked out my. Okay. I, I knocked out where I can't hear anything. I is having technical problems right now. So we'll be what, like, okay. the music part of it. <laughs> right. No, but I did pick up um, some little, some little mini busts. Uh-huh. Of um, the Universal Monsters. I got the Invisible Man, the Mummy, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, 
and the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, so. Well, what's what's uh, what's nice is the Phantom is actually um, released through Universal Monsters with agreement with uh, yeah. Cheney Industries. Yes. But yeah, when I saw Bella go see his grave first. Like, oh, oh, man, nice. Nice. Well, again, buried in the same section as Sharon Tate and... Right. So, but yeah, that told, oh. that's a really pretty section. But anyway... Oh, but for yeah, those of you that might be interested... I was speaking... Sorry. Well, I was going to say, it was kind of cool that James wanted to be his hero... For you know, Halloween was when he was yeah. nine. Because when I was nine, I went as Debbie Gibson. Which was fully of the time. So I have a electric huge youth cr- cover. Yeah. Oh yeah, electric youth. I have that a one. huge crush on Debbie. Well, yeah, I had the black blazer. Yeah, I have no picture of it though, which is like so annoying. My most eighties costume. I have no nothing. It's like oh. I had a huge. Cr- I still have a huge crush on Debbie Gibson. I saw her in um, God, in '99, but she was doing Joseph in Philadelphia. I had one I, whole I, one wall in my room was Debbie Gibson. The other wall was Fred Savage. I had some but pictures of Debbie Gibson mixed in with Alice Cooper and Kiss, and uh, yeah, yeah. It was literally like, and then in college, like one little section of my wall was Brendan Fraser. The voice of Cliff Steele on the Doom Patrol. Yeah. So that's why I said when I put it in like 30 years. I'm like, yep, it's yeah, ever since I've seen it, man. <laughs> so now that we've good night, everybody. <laughs> You're right. Uh before we get into the show, if any of you are interested, since we, we do talk about celebrity graves here and other cemeteries and shit. Uh there's a well, there's a book out called Over My Dead Body, which covers the history of um, certain cemeteries in America. And uh, one of the <laughs> yeah, one of them is the one that Monica likes to visit out in uh, California. That I'm a property owner of. But you already knew that too. But yes. So. If I ever get out there, I'm, I'm going to see if I can pay a visit to the, to the, to the true kings of comedy. Well, which one? Uh, Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, Groucho Marx, but I, I Mo Howard. I told you, Mo Howard. See, Mo Howard. He's at Hillside. Yeah. Um, but or, Bud Abbott. I think he was. He's out in the ocean, so you'll have to like. Go oh, leave he, it. Oh, like, he was uh, cremated and spread at sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to. Lou Costello is at Calvary, which I hate. Where, um, oh God, LaBianca. Oh okay. my God, I can't remember where Lena was buried. You know, when I die, I'd like to be spread at, uh, at the uh, Haunted Mansion at Disney World. I don't care if I'm cremated or not, just, just spread me there. Except not legal. Yeah, I know. Allowed. So that's a, like a one-way ticket for um, the people to. Like, <laughs> and my kids would look at me like, "Really, Dad?" Yeah. Mm. 
Okay, yeah, if you can find the book Over My Dead Body, I I think, I don't know. I haven't read it yet. It's it was, sitting it on my bookcase. It was funny, bookcase. though, because you asked me that day. I did. I, hey, I you heard this? I'm like, yeah, I'm getting it delivered today. And like, yeah, my copy came in this week. Okay. Okay. Uh, I yeah, think so my... In, one of the library magazines, the book pages yeah. the libraries get, that's where I, that's where I found it. The, or I think that. my copy came in with all my... um. Hollywood scandal books for the show. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I read that. I was like, "Oh my god, that looks awesome!" And then that was so funny. They're like, "Have you seen? Have you heard of this book?" I'm like, "Right." It's delivered today, so yes, I have. <laughs> All right, folks, we're gonna get into the show. We got a good one today. Um, this one, yeah, well, yeah, we got a show to do. Right? <laughs> oh my god. Um, it was like long. It's been a couple weeks, so okay. Right, we now. we haven't seen each other in a while, so we we've been. I've I've been tied with school and everything, but um, this is probably one of the more famous um, aerial disappearances in history. Besides some of our more recent ones, like that that one uh, Indian flight that just disappeared, no one's found it yet. Uh, the MH370, and it was oh the. Well, let you talk, but yeah, I'll write down a couple of the ones I was. Right. Thinking. Well, this one is the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Yeah, as, as I told you, we're covering all types of stuff now with with this uh, new co-host and new format and everything. We're branching out here, folks. Because how often can we do serial killers and make it interesting? Now, Amelia was born on July 24th, 1897. She was the daughter of Samuel Stanton Earhart and Amelia Amy Earhart. She was born in Atchison, Kansas, in the home of a maternal grandfather, Alfred Gideon Otis, who was a former federal judge, the president of the Atchison Savings Bank, and a leading citizen in town. She was the second child of the marriage after an infant was stillborn in August of 1896, which happened a lot back then. Sorry, folks, my fan blew my uh, script page to the floor. Now, she had a sister, Muriel, and they remained with their grandparents in Atchison while their parents moved into a smaller house in Des Moines. Now, during this period, the girls received homeschooling from their mother and a governess. Amelia later recounted that she was exceedingly fond of reading and spent countless hours in the large family library. In 1909, when the family was finally reunited in Des Moines, the Earhart children were enrolled in public school for the first time, and Amelia, who was 12, entered the seventh grade, as we all did back then. In 1915, after a long search, her father found work as a clerk at the Great Northern Railway in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she entered Central High School as a junior. Edwin applied for a transfer to Springfield, Missouri in 1915, but the current claims officer reconsidered his retirement and demanded his job back. 
leaving the elder Earhart with nowhere to go. Facing another calamitous move, Amy took her children to Chicago, where they lived with friends. Earhart made an unusual condition in the choice of her next schooling. She canvassed nearby high schools in Chicago to find the best science program. See, this is back when Chicago had a good school system there, folks. She rejected the high school nearest her home when she complained that the chemistry lab was just like a kitchen sink. Eventually, she enrolled in Hyde Park High School, but spent a miserable semester where a yearbook caption captured the essence of her unhappiness. A.E., the girl in brown who walks alone. That's, that sounds like a good name for a book or a movie. I'm not sure which. Our band. Right. The girl who walks, the girl in brown who walks alone, opening for the Pesh mode. Yeah, always like such a long name, always be an opening band. Right. Local fame. <laughs> she graduated from Chicago's Hyde Park High School in 1916. Throughout her troubled childhood, she had continued to aspire to a future career. She kept a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about successful women in predominantly male-oriented fields, including film direction and production, law, advertising, management, and mechanical engineering. She began junior college at Agnott's School in Rydal, Pennsylvania. Ogon's in Rydal. Okay. Thank you for the uh, Pennsylvania. I'm pretty sure. I'm like more sure than you are, but yeah. Obviously, like like on the other half side. uh, Right. Well, thanks for the the, the Pennsylvania translation. You're welcome. But she didn't complete her program. Now, during Christmas vacation, and right about now is where I would probably queue up uh, Lindsay Buckingham's Holiday Road. During her Christmas vacation in 1917, she visited her sister in Toronto. World War I had been raging, and Earhart saw the returning wounded soldiers. After receiving training as a nurse's aide from the Red Cross, she began work with the Volunteer Aid Detachment at Spadina Military Hospital. Her duties included preparing food in the kitchen for patients with special diets and handing out prescribed medication in the hospital's dispensary. There, she heard stories from military pilots, which started a developing interest in flying. Now, about the time, around this time, Earhart and a young woman friend visited an airfield held, or an airfare, sorry, held in conjunction with the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto. The interest aroused in me in Toronto led me to all the air circuses in the vicinity. One of the highlights of the day was a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace, and no, it wasn't a little beagle sitting on top of a doghouse. The pilot overhead spotted Earhart and her friend who were watching from an isolated clearing and dived at them. I'm sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper, she said. She stood her ground as the aircraft came close. I did not understand it at the time, she said, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. 
On December 20th, 1920, Amelia and her father attended an aerial meet at Daughtery Field in Long Beach, California. She asked her father, Edwin, oh, now I get the name, Edwin Stanton. It was named after uh, Lincoln's Secretary of War. Normally, I'm quicker on the uptake on this. This is, and actually, I felt with my quick research, I'm actually pretty embarrassed that Ogons, yeah, that's Montgomery County. That's like a county over part of Abington. So, and now it closed in 1950 and then it became part like of the Penn State system. So, yeah. Okay. Well, hanging my head in shame here right now, too. So. <laughs> So she asked Edwin about passenger flights and flying lessons. She was booked for a passenger flight the following day at Emory Rogers Field at the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Fairfax Avenue. Wilshire. Okay, Wilshire. You've been out there more than I have, so. Oh, yeah. Uh The cost was 10 bucks for a 10-minute flight with Frank Hawks, who later gained, gained fame as an air racer. Hawks gave her a ride that would forever change her life. By the time I had got two or three hundred feet off the ground, she said, I knew I had to fly. The next month, she recruited Netta Snook to be her flying instructor. The initial contract was for 12 hours of instruction for $500. Working at a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and stenographer at the local telephone company, she managed to save a grand for flying lessons. Amelia had her first lesson on January 3rd, 1921 at Kinner Field on the west side of Long Beach Boulevard and Tweedy Road, now in the city of Southgate. Snook used a crashed salvaged Curtis JN4 Canuck that he restored for the training. In order to reach the airfield, Amelia had to take a bus to the end of the line, then walk four miles. Her mother also provided part of the $1,000 stake against her better judgment. Well, I just don't know. I I just don't think it's right for a woman to go flying up there because being up that high in the ground just will do just... Weird things to your body. Won't be able to have kids or anything. Well, it's and I've heard this on several podcasts. How fat? And you probably know this from taking James to the uh, railroad museums. How fast do you think those old uh, uh, steamers went? The old steam engines went twenty miles an hour. Yeah. Now, people back then were afraid of women getting on the trains because going 20 miles an hour might cause your uterus to fall out. That'd be a lot of uteruses falling out. Right. (laughs) It's just like, like, whoops, there goes another one. All aboard. Whoop. The train's going to be delayed for 10 minutes while the cleaning crew comes in and cleans up the cars there, folks. I was just had a sex, like, you know, a car, like how they have the quiet cars now. 
because we had, you know, a female with a uterus. Right. Like, the, the, um, ma'am, so then you just keep it all contained and then leave. And then, I mean, would be here, there, right? I mean, thank yeah. people. <laughs> you know, uh, ma'am, I'm sorry. You're going to have to go sit in the uh, uterus car. That, that's next to the uh, to the Pullmans there. It has a picture with you. <laughs> you can tell we're like, yeah. Like, right. We're, we're like... Uh, I was going to say, this is off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> going off the rails on a crazy train. Now, Amelia's commitment to flying required her to accept the frequent hard work and rudimentary conditions that accompanied early aviation training. To complete her image transformation, she also cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Six months later, in the summer of 1921, she purchased a second-hand bright chromium yellow Kenner airspeed biplane against Snook's advice, which she nicknamed the Canary. Well, that's just original. Okay, right. 1921. They weren't real original on nicknames. Or Bumblebee, right? They could have named it Big Bird. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. Even before, that'd be cool. Yeah. Right. Actually. Well, um, I know before we get too far into this, I know right now, well, the last time I was in DC, it was closed for renovations, but the uh, Air and Space Museum has a, a plane that was in the style that she, float, that she flew. Hey, where is it hanging up? No, it, um, in the main. Okay, you know in the main gallery when you where you walk in where there's like uh it's up on the second floor. Uh it's it's a red um it, it's a red plane. Mm-hmm. Um it oh god, it looks like a squat little fat lady bug. Yeah. Yeah, because we were there in well we were when I went for eh, Bush's um you know yeah. the capital. That's the last time. Uh, I was just there in July, and uh, yeah. the museum was completely closed for uh, renovations. No, yeah, it's been a while since it's been renovated, and all. You used to have McDonald's there, like where, but yeah. <laughs> you know, what's strange. I think the Museum of Science, no, the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. I think they still have a McDonald's attached to it. Yeah, yeah, because now it was. Um, where the the cap, the regular cafeteria yeah. is, but like they run it. That was when I was there in two thousand nine. It was McDonald's. Yay! Oh, okay. Enough for yeah. You know, uh, anybody from McDonald's is listening to the show. Please bring back the McDonaldland shortbread cookies because those were the bomb. And also the Southwest chicken salad. It's like one of the only things I craved when I was pregnant. So. Thank you. That's our that's our request. Thank you. After her first successful solo landing, she bought a new leather flying coat. Due to the newness of the coat, she was subjected to teasing, so she aged her coat by sleeping in it and staining it with aircraft oil. That'll do it. On October twenty second, nineteen twenty two, she flew the airster to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a new record for female pilots. 
On May 16, 1923, she became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license number 6017 by the Federation Aeronautic International. After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, Amy Guest expressed interest in being the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding that the trip was too perilous for her to undertake, she offered to sponsor the project, suggesting that they find another girl with the right image. While at work one afternoon in April 1928, Earhart got a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Raleigh, who asked her, would you like to fly the Atlantic? The project coordinators, including book publisher and publicist George P. Putnam, interviewed Earhart and asked her to accompany pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot mechanic Lewis Gordon on the flight, nominally as a passenger but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. The team departed from Trapassi Harbor, Newfoundland, and a Fokker F, the, what, I-I-B? Uh, a, a Fokker. Yeah. <laughs> well, Fokker, can you milk me? <laughs> a Fokker V-A-B-3-M. Thank you. Named Friendship. On June 17, 1928, landing at Hules near Burryport, South Wales. No, I screwed that one up. Exactly 20 hours and 40 minutes later, there is a commemorative blue plaque at the site. Since most of the flight was on instruments and Earhart had no training for this type of flying, she did not pilot the aircraft. When interviewed after landing, she said, Stoltz did all the flying, had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. She added, maybe someday I'll try it alone. Earhart reportedly received a rousing welcome on June 19, 1928, when she landed at Wollston in Southampton, England. She flew the Avro Avian 594 Avian 3. Yeah. S serial number, right? Yeah. R3. Slash AV slash 101, owned by Lady Mary Heath and later purchased the aircraft and had it shipped back to the United States, where it was assigned unlicensed aircraft identification mark 7083. I wonder when if this, this is the one that's at the, at the Smithsonian. Maybe. Probably should be easy enough to find out with them just look. Uh, yeah. Let me look through. Oh shit! Let yeah. me look through my pictures. Okay. When the Stoltz, Gordon, and Earhart flight crew returned to the United States on July 6, they were greeted with a ticker tape parade along the Canyon of Heroes in Manhattan, followed by a reception with President Calvin Coolidge at the White House. Cool Cal. Yep. Trading on her physical resemblance to Lindbergh, whom the press had dubbed Lucky Lindy. Some newspapers and magazines began referring to Earhart as Lady Lindy. The United Press was more grandiloquent. To them, Earhart was the reigning queen of the air. Immediately after her return to the United States, she undertook an exhausting lecture tour in 1928 and 1929. Meanwhile, Putnam had undertaken to heavily promote her in a campaign campaign 
They included publishing a book she authored, a series of new lecture tours, and using pictures of her in mass market endorsements for products, including luggage, Lucky Strike cigarettes. This caused image problems for her, with McCall's magazine retracting an offer, and women's clothing and sportswear. The money that she made from Lucky Strike had been earmarked for a $1,500 donation to Commander Richard Byrd's imminent South Pole expedition. The marketing campaign by both Earhart and Putnam was successful in establishing the Earhart mystique in the public psyche. Rather than simply endorsing the products, Earhart actively became involved in the promotions, especially in women's fashions. Uh, actually, the one that said uh, at the Smithsonian is a Lockheed 5B Vega. Okay. For a number of years, she had sewn her own clothes with the active living lines that were sold in 50 stores, such as Macy's, in metropolitan areas were an expression of a new Earhart image. Her concept of simple, natural lines matched with wrinkle-proof, washable materials was the embodiment of a sleek, purposeful, purposeful but feminine A.E., the familiar name she went by with family and friends. The luggage line that she promoted, marketed as Modern Air Earhart Luggage, also bore her unmistakable stamp. A wide range of promotional items bearing the name Earhart name also appeared. Uh, and, okay. I, I don't know how true this is. Remember, I heard this on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, so take it with a grain of salt, people. But during this time where she was real famous, mm-hmm. she is rumored to have an affair with Harpo Marx. <laughs> I, I wonder if he had the horn going the whole time, you know. Honk, honk. <laughs> I mean, oh, my. Uh, of all the Marx brothers she could have had an affair with, she went with Harpo. I know, right? Uh, you know, Chico needed the money, so. Uh huh. Oh, you threw me off now. In 1935. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much. In 1935, Earhart joined Purdue University as a visiting faculty member to counsel women on careers and as a technical advisor to its Department of Aeronautics. Early 1936, Earhart started planning a round-the-world flight. Although others had flown around the world, her flight would be the longest at 29,000 miles because it followed a roughly equatorial route. With financing from Purdue, in July 1936, a Lockheed Electra 10E was built at Lockheed Aircraft Company to her specifications, which included extensive modifications to the fuselage to incorporate many additional fuel tanks. Earhart dubbed the twin-engine monoplane her flying laboratory. The plane was built at Lockheed's Burbank, California plant, and after delivery, it was hangered at Mansa's United Air Services, which was just across the airfield from the Lockheed plant. Uh, boys, we're just going to take this across the street now. 
Miss Earhart wants, we just gonna put it across the street, you know, ain't got flyer nothing. We just we could just push it. Although the electro was publicized as a flying laboratory, little useful science was planned, and the flight was arranged around Earhart's intention to circumnavigate the globe along with gathering raw material and public attention for her next book. Earhart chose Captain Harry Manning as her navigator. He had been the captain of the President Roosevelt, the ship that had brought Earhart back from Europe in 1928. Manning was not only a navigator, but he was also a pilot and a skilled radio operator who knew Morse code. I tried to learn that in Boy Scouts and couldn't, couldn't master it. Yes, because it's so useful. Right. I think the last time they used Morse code was when the uh, Titanic went down. Help. Sinking. Help. DiCaprio on board. No rush. Ouch. Through contacts in the Los Angeles aviation community, Fred Newton was subsequently chosen as a second navigator. Yay, lucky him. Because there were significant additional factors that had to be dealt with while using celestial navigation for air. Number two. It's like the backup for um, <laughs> Chris McAuliffe, too, right? Right. Woo! Number and, two. Jennings, too, right? You know, he. You know when he got the call, he was like high five and everybody. Yeah. It's Fred's time to shine, people. Uh-huh. Pop Nuna open a beard, Charlie. Nuno was experienced in both Marine. He was a licensed ship's captain and flight navigation. Nuno had recently left Pan Am, where he established most of the company's China Clipper seaplane routes across the Pacific. Nuno had also been responsible for training Pan American's navigators the route between San Francisco and Manila. The original plans were for Noonan to navigate from Hawaii to Howland Island, a particularly difficult portion of the flight. Then Manning would continue with Earhart to Australia, and she would proceed on her own for the remainder of the project. On March 17, 1937, Earhart and her crew flew the first leg from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. In addition to Earhart and Noonan, Harry Manning and Mance, who was acting as Earhart's technical advisor, were on board. Due to lubrication and galling problems with the propeller hubs, variable pitch mechanisms, the aircraft needed servicing in Hawaii. Ultimately, and they caught a Don, Don Ho concert while they were out there. Tiny bubbles in my wine. <laughs> they they caught a luau on the beach, you know. Had had some roasted pig. Watched a volcano erupt. Had a few daiquiris. Oh hell yeah! Checked out Pearl Harbor, you know, before the the shit went down. Well, if you would let me finish the next line. Okay. Okay. Ultimately, the Electra ended up at the United States Navy Luke Field on Fort Island. In Pearl Harbor. Woohoo! <laughs> the flight resumed three days later from Luke Field with Earhart, Newton, and Manning on board. The next destination was Howland Island, a small island in the Pacific. 
Manning, the only skilled radio operator, had made arrangements to use radio direction finding to home in on the, to the island. The flight never left Luke Field. During the takeoff run, there was an uncontrolled ground loop. The forward landing gear collapsed. Both propellers hit the ground. The plane skidded on its belly, and a portion of the runway was damaged. My bad. The cause of the ground loop is controversial. Some witnesses at Luke Field, including the Associated Press journalist, said they saw a tire blow. Earhart thought either the Electra's right tire had blown and or the right landing gear had collapsed. Some sources, including Mance, cited pilot error. Uh, meaning the pilot was drunk. From all the daiquiris. Yeah, all the daiquiris. You know, he had a full belly of pork. You know, he... Actually, the pilot, the pilot wrecked it because he... Uh, he had a couple of little uh, hula girls on the side that he wanted to go see again. I was going to say the the dancing hula girl on the right the the the, the, the dashboard yeah. hula girl. Yeah, with uh-huh. with the chihuahua with the bobbing head, you know. Yeah, uh huh. And the little dingle balls hanging around the the in La Bamba. With the aircraft severely damaged. The flight was called off and the aircraft was shipped by sea to the Lockheed Burbank facility for repairs. Manning, having taken a leave of absence to do the flight, felt that there had been too many problems and delays. He ended his association with the trip, which probably saved his life, leaving only Earhart with Noonan and neither of whom were skilled radio operators. While the Electra was being repaired, Earhart and Putnam secured additional funds and prepared for a second attempt. This time, flying west to east, the second attempt began with an unpublicized flight from Oakland to Miami. And after arriving there, she publicly announced her plans to circumnavigate the globe. The flight's opposite direction was partly the result of changes in global wind and weather patterns along the planned route since the earlier attempt. On this second flight, Fred was Earhart's only crew member. The pair departed Miami on June 1st, and after numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and Southeast Asia, they arrived at, and I'm going to butcher this, Lay, because my teacher always told me when there's two vowels together, one is silent, so we're going to go with Lay. They arrived at Ley, New Guinea on June 29, 1937, and the New Guinea pygmies were happy. At this stage, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed. The remaining 7,000 miles would be over the Pacific Ocean. On July 2, 1937, at 10 o'clock in the morning, midnight, GMT time, Amelia and Fred took off from the Lay Airfield in the heavily loaded Electra. Their intended destination was Howland Island, a flat sliver of land 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide, 10 feet high, and 2,556 miles away. The expected flight time was about 20 hours, so 
accounting for the two-hour time zone difference between Ley and Howland and crossing of the international dateline. The aircraft is expected to arrive at Howland the morning of the next day, July 2nd. Or two weeks later, the uh, international dateline messes everything up. The aircraft departed Ley with about 1,100 gallons of gasoline, a can of beans, and a burrito from um, a quickie mart. Sometimes you got to have that microwavable burrito from the quickie mart. That, that it, unless you're getting a Frisco breakfast sandwich from Hardee's, those burritos are food of the gods. Around 3 p.m. late time, Amelia reported her altitude as 10,000 feet, but they would reduce altitude due to thick clouds. Not counting the uh, thick clouds that Fred was smoking there in the compartment. Around 5 p.m., she reported her altitude as 7,000 feet and speed as 150 knots. Their last known position report was near the Nukumanu Islands, about 800 miles into the flight. During the flight, Fred may have been able to do some celestial navigation to determine his position. If crossing the international dateline was not taken into account at one degree or 60 mile, a 60 mile position error would result. In preparation for the trip to Howland, the U.S. Coast Guard had sent their cutter, the USCG Itasca, to the island. The cutter offered many services such as ferrying and news reporters to the island, but it also had communication and navigation functions. The plan was the cutter the plan was the cutter could communicate with the aircraft via radio, transmit a radio homing signal to make it easier to find Howland Island without precise celestial navigation, do radio direction if Amelia used her five hundred kilohertz transmitter, use an experimental high frequency direction finder for her voice transmissions and use her boilers to make smoke. All of the navigation methods would fail to guide it, guide her to the island. Now, the Electra had radio equipment for both communication and navigation, but details about that equipment are not exactly clear. The Electra failed to establish two-way radio communications with the Atasca and failed to radio locate the Atasca. Many explanations have been proposed for these failures. Now, the Atasca was on station at Howland. Its task was to communicate, as we said, with the Electra and guide them to the island once they were in the vicinity. Noonan and Earhart expected to do voice communications on 3105 kHz. I hope I'm saying that right. And I know there's going to be some type of electrical wizard going, oh, you're not saying it right. During the night and 6210 during the day. Through a series of misunderstandings or errors, details of which are still controversial, the final approach to the island using radio navigation was not successful. Fred had earlier written about problems affecting the accuracy of radio direction finding and navigation. Another cited cause of possible confusion was that the Atasca and Earhart 
plan their communication schedule using time systems set at a half an hour apart, with Earhart using Greenwich Mean, or I mean Greenwich Civil, and the Itasca under Naval Time Zone Designation Systems. Oh, 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 those are fun. I think I had to learn those when I was in the Navy, but I don't remember them now, so don't ask me to remember now, during their final approach or during their approach to the to Howland Island, the Itasca received strong and clear voice transmissions from Earhart identifying as CAC, K-H-A-Q-Q, but she apparently was unable to hear voice transmissions from the ship. Signals from the ship would also be used for directional finding, implying that the aircraft's direction finder was also not functional. The first calls, routine reports stating the weather is cloudy and overcast, were received at 2.45 just before 5 a.m. on July 2nd. These calls were broken up by static, but at this point, the aircraft could, would still be a long distance from Howard. At 6.14 a.m., another call was received stating the aircraft was within 200 miles and requested that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft. Amelia began whistling into the microphone to provide a continual signal for them to home in on. It was at this point that the radio operators on the Itasca realized that their RDF system could not tune into the aircraft's 3105 frequency. Radio man Leo Bellerts later commented that he was sitting there sweating blood because I couldn't do a darn thing about it. A similar call asking for a bearing was received at 6.45 a.m. when Amelia estimated they were 100 miles out. And I task a radio log at 7.30, 7.40 a.m. states, Earhart on Northwest says running out of gas, only half hour left, can't hear us at all. We hear her and are sending on 3105 ES 500, same time, constantly. Another Itasca radio log at 7.42 a.m. states, KHAQQ calling Itasca. We must be on you, but cannot see you. But gas is running low, been, able to, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a 1,000 feet. Earhart 7.58 a.m. transmission said she could not hear the Itasca and asked them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing. This transmission was reported by the Itasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They could not send voice at the frequency she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these, but says she was unable to determine their direction. Hey, we're over here! In her last note, over here! At 843 a.m., Earhart broadcast, we are on the line, 157-337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. However, a few moments later, she was back on the same frequency, 3105, with the transmission that was logged as questionable. We are running online north and south. 
Earhart's transmission seemed to indicate she and Newton believed they had reached Howland's charted position, which was incorrect, by about five nautical miles. The Itasca used her oil fire boilers to generate smoke for a period of time, but the flyers apparently did not see it. The many scattered clouds in the area around Howland Island have also been cited as a problem. Their dark shadows on the ocean's surface may have been almost indistinguishable from the island's subdued and very flat profile. Do you think that if, I mean, I know I'm going to catch hell for this one, but do you think they had two guys up on top of the smokestacks with a blanket doing smoke signals? Yes, I do. <laughs> two guys going, this is some BS, man. Why they got to get us up here? I don't know, Running Bear, keep doing it. Now we're in trouble. Yeah, now we're in trouble. Yeah. I went I went there, it's my fault. Whether any post loss radio signals were received from Earhart and Newton remains unclear. If transmissions were received from the Electra, most, if not all, were weak and hopelessly garbled. This is why I can't wouldn't be able to read like audiobooks. <laughs> like, uh, Earhart's voice transmissions to Howland were on thirty one zero five kilohertz a frequency restricted in the United States by the FCC to aviation use. This frequency was thought to be not fit for broadcasts over great distances. When Earhart was at cruising altitude and midway between Ley and Howland, over 1,000 miles from each, neither station heard her scheduled transmission at 085 GCT. Moreover, the 50-watt transmitter used by Earhart was attached to a less-than-optimum-length V-type antenna. The last voice transmission received on Howland Island from Earhart indicated she and Newton were flying along a line of position running north-south on 157 to 337 degrees, which Newton would have calculated and drawn on a chart as passing through Howland. After all contact was lost with Howland Island, attempts were made to reach the flyers with both both voice and Morse code transmissions. Operators across the Pacific and the United States may have heard signals from the downed Electra, but these were unintelligible or weak. Some of these reports of transmissions were later to be determined to be hoaxes, but others were deemed authentic. Bearings taken by Pan American Airways stations suggested signals originating from several locations, including Gardner Island, Nicomo Roro, 360 miles to the... South, southeast. South, okay, I thought so. South, southeast. Sure wasn't, you know... Right. Typo, typo. No, um, they usually uh, put directions like that north, like, like your, one of your... Man, Jimmy Stewart's movies, North by Northwest. Yeah. No, that's Cary Grant. We... Was that Cary Grant? That's Cary Grant. Why do I keep thinking it was Jimmy Stewart? Because you've been awesome in it as anything, too. But yeah. Well, right. What was the one that he did with that was in the uh, air, in the cornfield with the airplane? North by Northwest? Okay, man, I'm out of it right now. Oh, yeah. See, picture. 
It looks like Jimmy Stewart when he's running there. Yeah, it's kind of green. Okay. And again. Sorry, where's the S? Like all of, oh, there you go. Okay. Sorry about that. The allergies again, affecting everything. It was noted at the time that if these signals were from Earhart Newton, they must have been on land with the aircraft since water would have otherwise shorted out the electro's electrical system. Sporadic signals were reported for four or five days after the disappearance, but none yielded any understandable information. The captain of USS Colorado later said, there was no doubt many stations were calling the Earhart plane on the plane's frequency, some by voice and others by signals. All these added to the confusion and doubtfulness of the authenticity of the reports. Beginning approximately one hour after Earhart's last recorded message, the USCGC Itasca undertook an ultimately unsuccessful search north and west of Howland Island based on initial assumptions about transmission from the aircraft. The United States Navy soon joined the search and over a period of about three days, sent available resources to the search area in the vicinity of Howland Island. The initial search by the Itasca involved running up the 157-337 line of position to the north-northwest from Howland Island. The Itasca then searched the area to the immediate immediate northeast of the island, corresponding to the area yet wider than the area searched to the northwest. Based on bearings of several supposed Earhart radio transmissions, some of the search efforts were directed to a specific position on a line of 281 degrees, approximately northwest from Howland Island, without evidence of the flyers. Four days after Earhart's last verified radio transmission, on July 6, 1937, the captain of the battleship Colorado received orders from the commandant, 14th Naval District, to take over all naval and coast guard units to coordinate search efforts. Later search efforts were directed to the Phoenix Islands south of Howland. A week after the disappearance, naval aircraft from the Colorado flew over several islands in the group, including Gardner Island, now called Nikumaroro, I butchered that, which had been uninhabited for over 40 years. The subsequent report on Gardner read, here's signs of recent habitation were clearly visible, but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit any answering wave from possible inhabitants, and it was finally taken for granted that none were there. At the west end of the island, a tramp steamer, about 4,000 tons, lay high and almost dry lay high and almost dry head onto the coral beach with her back broken in two places the lagoon at gardner looks sufficiently deep and certainly large enough so that a seaplane or even an airboat could have landed or taken off in any direction with little if any difficulty given a chance it is believed that miss Earhart could have landed her craft in this lagoon and swum or waded ashore they also found that Gardner's shape and size, as recorded on charts, were wholly inaccurate. Imagine that. Other Navy search efforts were again directed northwest and southwest of Holland Island, 
based on a possibility the Electra had ditched in the ocean, was afloat, or that the aviators were, were in an emergency raft. My pages are stuck together, folks. Just hold on one moment. The official search efforts lasted until July 19, 1937. At $4 million, the air and sea search by the Navy and Coast Guard was the most costly and intensive US his, in U.S. history up to that time. But search and rescue techniques during the era were rudimentary, and some of the search was based on erroneous assumptions and flawed information. Official reporting of the search effort was influenced by individuals wary about how their roles in looking for an American hero might be reported by the press. Despite an unprecedented search by the United States Navy and Coast Guard, no physical evidence of Earhart, Noonan, or the Electra 10E was found. The aircraft carrier, the USS Lexington, the battleship, the USS Colorado, the Itasca, the Japanese oceanographic survey vessel, Koshu, and the Japanese seaplane tender, Kamoi, searched for six to seven days each, covering 150,000 square miles. Immediately after the end of the search, Putnam financed a private search by local authorities of nearby Pacific Islands and waters, concentrating on the Gilberts. In late July 1937, Putnam chartered two small boats, and while he remained in the United States, directed a search of the Phoenix Islands Christmas, Christmas Island, Fanning Island, the Gilbert Islands, and the Marshall Islands, but found no trace of the electorate or its occupants was found. Back in the United States, Putnam acted to become the trustee of Earhart's estate so that he could pay for the searches and related bills. In probate court in Los Angeles, Putnam requested to have the de- declared a death and absentee a seven-year waiting period waived so that he could manage Earhart's finances. As a result, she was declared legally dead on January 5th, 1939. So, what are some of the more uh, possible theories about this happening? Well, oh, looks like Monica was going to say something. No. One is, of course, that they crashed on one of the numerous... Unha- uh, uncharted islands out there. Which and is it, what was that? I think. Well, and the thing, or just right into the. Well, and right. If they had gone into the ocean, you know, like they said, it was rudimentary, so we never would have even spotted a debris field. Nothing washed up on any, on any island around there. Now, every so often you hear about a a research or a search team going out to these islands and they'll find a little piece of metal and go, well, this could have been part of the electric. But once they do all the tests and everything, they find out it's not from the electric. It's a bird bed or something. Well, you also have to, you know. Well, you also have to think um, during World War II, the Marshall Islands were. Part of our island, and I'm going to get messed up on this because I'm not familiar with World War II that much. But we were out there in the Marshalls. I think it was part of our island hopping campaign 
to get closer to the Japanese mainland. Now, if they were still on the marshals at that point, the United States Navy would have found them, and that the Navy and the Marines would have found them, and there would have been, you know, even in the middle of World War II, there would have been headlines. Hey, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were found. Hey, they're on the islands. You know, living like a Gilligan's Island type thing. Mm-hmm. Now, the one theory that seems to hold the most evidence because uh, you know, guys at the time who were in the Japanese Imperial Army have come forward and said this, is that they went down, but they had gone down near like a Japanese warship and were taken prisoner under the suspicion that they were spying for America. Because at this point, we're, we're we're getting we're still a little bit off from World War Two. Well, we didn't get involved until forty one. But you've got Hitler, you know, taking power in Germany and conquering lands. You got Hirohito doing it in the Pacific. So the general idea is that Amelia and Fred were captured by the Japanese, put into an internment camp. And they died in the camp and are and are buried with other prisoners. I think this is the more plausible of the two. Just for the fact that, you know, at this point, you know, Japan is really getting uh, getting paranoid about the about what they're doing in the Pacific, and especially. If um, America catches them conquering islands before they're ready to face uh, our military might. Same. Yeah. yeah. I think this is the one that is most likely to happen. They were captured. Um, I was watching one special where a uh, uh, Old Japanese soldiers said, yeah, uh, they were, I seen an American woman here. She was held in this, um, she was held in this building here. And then I dug her grave over there. And, you know, granted, they never brought ground penetrating radar or anything to bear, but it sounds reasonable to me. Was another the Steve Fawcett disappearance? Oh yeah, I didn't realize it was so long ago. Now September of two thousand seven, but they found his remains like thirteen months later. Right. Well, and like I said, with Imperial Japan um, getting crazy out there in the Pacific, we I, I think we had an idea when um, MacArthur came was expelled from the Philippines when uh, Imperial Japan took the Philippines and he made his, you know, vow to return. And then he came back and there was a famous picture of him coming up, you know, standing like ankle deep in the (laughs) ankle deep in the, in, in the uh, waters at the, on the beach. And he's looking all defiant and that corn cob pipe sticking out and, I have returned. 
Yay. Oh, MacArthur. He, he I, I've not read much about the man, but the, the man sounds like a complete lunatic, but he was our lunatic, so. Mm-hmm. Although he did have a, a um, grandfather or great-grandfather, I'm not sure which, that fought in the Civil War. It wasn't grandfather. Um, well, the, right. Uh, it could have been his grandfather. Um, I know your man, Jimmy Stewart, he had an ancestor fought in the war. Yeah, his grandfather. The one he was uh, named after. Right. Jimmy Stewart, um, MacArthur, uh, Patton, George Patton had a grandfather that fought. And what's, I found this interesting, especially with Patton, was, uh, his grandfather was friends with the Confederate Raider John Mosby. And 10-year-old Patton learned military tactics from the Grey Ghost using army figures when, uh, when he was in California. Yeah, some look of his, um, it was his grandfather. But, um, Doesn't he say anything about the um being so war though? I I'd read it somewhere. I don't know what book got I've read so many books on the Civil War. I lose he track. Was, he was governor. Acting governor of Wisconsin and all, but yeah. So yeah but uh yeah, nothing about Civil War. Right. We are going to wrap this one up, folks. I hope you enjoyed this one. Um, Even though it went slightly off the rails. but Oh, God, yeah. Our medications are kicking in. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm really feeling it right now in, in the sinus cavity up in the, you know, like right up in here. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling it now. So I I apologize for any um, noises I might have made during tonight's broadcast because I think after the microphones go off, I'm going to sneeze my brains out. See, um, his I was gonna say, his grandfather died in Atlantic City. So Lucky Thompson did that one. So uh, find us on Spotify. Spotify is the big one. Um, Castbox. Castbox is the other big one. I'm still working to get us on iTunes. I got a call uh, the support department tomorrow and see if I can get some things changed, but I am working on it. Godspeed with that one. All right. And uh, for those of you who may remember me doing the smart-ass historian, I am... I'm making the announcement now. I'm work. I'm going to start working on scripts this week. Um, I'm not sure when I'm when I'm going to relaunch it, but keep posted. I'll let you know. And for Killers, Cults, Nut Jobs, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica. <laughs> <laughs>